You're listening to episode 129 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? So I am recording this intro from a teeny tiny closet in New York City. Let's just say that producing episodes from this city is not exactly the quietest. We have construction going on right outside of this closet door and also someone using the bathroom next door and people working in the hallways, scraping things off the wall. So in case there's any funny noise, just imagine yourself in New York City with me. All right. So getting right into our episode, a ginormous thank you to all of you who left a rating and a review for us on iTunes. I know it's a bit of a situation to get through all the steps and it means so much to us that you took the time. I'm not exactly sure how, but I hear that the combination of having our listeners subscribe to us on iTunes and also leave a rating and a review for our podcast does something to the iTunes algorithm and is supposed to help make our podcast more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before. A lot of time and love goes into making this podcast and 88 Cups of Tea what it is today. So truly, thank you so much for taking the time to help us grow our community. A special thank you to our listener, Danae Parker, who recently rated us five stars and wrote, My absolute favorite. I am so grateful for the storyteller tribe 88 Cups of Tea has provided for me. Yin Chang has created a podcast with so much helpful information and insights in regards to all things story that it almost makes your head explode. The breadth of authors she interviews means no matter what genre you enjoy reading or writing, there's something for everyone here. Not only this, but the entire community she's fostered is one of love, encouragement, and genuine rooting for one another. I'm always excited for Thursdays to listen to new episodes and learn all I can from other storytellers. If you're looking for a podcast that provides laughter, advice, and a desire for Yin to be her new best friend, this is the one for you. Oh my god, Danae, my head just exploded from reading that out loud. Thank you so freaking much for taking the time out of your day to write such a kind, thoughtful, and heartfelt review. I am so, so happy to have you as a listener and also have you in our private Facebook group. Thank you for always showing up in that group with love and support, seriously. On to the next part of our intro, we have a private Facebook group. Yep, you heard me and Zanae talking about the group, and this is the one we're referring to. Our private Facebook group is a pretty magical place for fellow 88 Cups of Tea listeners to connect and hang out. We have weekly threads where we check in with each other about storyteller-related things, and I also chat very closely with our group members to involve them with our podcast and community-related decisions, and they really help to shape the growth and direction of 88 Cups of Tea. You get the chance to request who you'd love to hear next on the show, and I also do live video catch-ups and book unboxings. If these are things that jump out at you, we would love to hang out with you in our group at 88cupsofteacom slash FB group. It's so fun in there, and I'm really proud to share that our group is filled with the most encouraging and supportive storytellers. Join us over at 88cupsofteacom slash FB group. Now on to our guest, we have Rachel Kane on our show. This is a really special episode and one that made me cry mid-conversation. I've had to hold on to this episode for a while, and I am so thrilled to finally share it with you. Rachel is the New York Times, USA Today, and Wall Street Journal bestselling author of more than 50 novels in a diverse range of genres and categories. 
Yeah, you heard it right. Over 50. Five, zero. Rachel has also written many short stories in a wide variety of anthologies and collections and screenplays for both feature film and television. She wrote all scripts for the 2014 production of Morganville, a web series adaptation of her best-selling young adult series, which you can catch on Amazon Prime or Vimeo. Rachel's been honored with multiple awards from RT Book Lovers Association and the Texas Library Association and was honored with two spots on the 2012 Most Favorite Books of UK School Children list. More recently, in 2017, she began writing thrillers with the huge bestsellers Stillhouse Lake and Kilman Creek. In early July of this year, she'll also be releasing Smoke and Iron, her fourth book in the Great Library series where she continues the adventures of her unforgettable characters from Ink and Bone, Paper and Fire, and Ash and Quill. In Rachel's episode, we discuss how she first fell in love with storytelling, how her musical background taught her to be in the moment with her writing, and how she met her first editor and then sold her first book. I have never talked to anyone as skilled at time management, and I can't wait for you to hear all about her different full-time jobs while simultaneously writing multiple books on deadline each year. I know most of you have a full-time job, so be sure to pay special attention to today's episode as Rachel shares helpful advice on carving out time for your writing around a full-time job. We also dive into the details about the inspiration behind her stories that helped establish the urban fantasy genre, how she proactively gets the word out about her novels, advice on navigating the world of conventions, conferences, and school visits to promote your work, and how Rachel and her team packages her different genres to make her series distinct from one another. Further into our conversation, we discuss how to go about the writing business by taking control of your expectations, the different ways to overcome writing difficult scenes in your story, crafting a plot that interacts naturally with your characters, and advice on how to decide which point of view works best for your story. Now let's dive right in. Hello, everybody. We have Rachel Kane with us today. I know a lot of you are super excited and pumped about this episode, and I am too. Rachel is so sweet to make the time for us. Rachel, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. It's such a delight to be here today. I've heard a lot about your show, and I was so excited when you called me. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that is so sweet. Thank you so much. And I just remember reaching out to you, and I was like, oh my gosh, already Rachel sounds like such a kind and wonderful human being, and I just could not be more excited to chat with you. Before we get into any more details, I'd love to start all the way back. Can you walk us through your first memory of how you first fell in love with storytelling? I think it was probably when my mom gave me this amazing illustrated book. It was probably from the 1890s or early 1900s of fairy tales. And I read that thing and read it for years. I loved the illustrations. I loved the stories. From then on, there was just no stopping me. I was such a huge reader. We lived out in the desert, about probably 20 miles from El Paso. And 20 miles from El Paso, Texas is nothing. We had one bookmobile from the library that came out once a month. And I began to read my way through the entire bookmobile when I was in junior high and high school. I think I probably started writing stories when I was about 14. But as far as thinking I could be a writer, that took a lot longer. When did you realize that being an author could be an actual career. I have a story about that. I was writing things, but honestly, I never even thought 
anyone would want to read them. I think I was about 27. I had submitted some stuff, gotten rejected, took that as a sign that I was never going to get anywhere. And so I just kept writing and putting it away because I was very shy. And a friend of mine found something I'd written and he knew me well enough to know he didn't want to tell me that he was going to do this. He just bought me a ticket to a writer's conference. And then he told me we were going to lunch and he drove me to the convention center, handed me my ticket and drove away laughing. He's the sweetest. He's the best. I thought then I had to go in and I had to find out more about what this whole writing thing was like. And I actually met my first editor, the first panel that I walked into. He bought my first book. Wow. That never happened. It's a weird, fluky thing that happened to me. (laughs) Thank God you were literally tricked into thinking you were having lunch and just dropped off right there. I feel like everything just aligned for you perfectly, but also you were ready because you had your work there. That's incredible. I think this is also something important. Number one, keep doing work because when you're ready and you show up, these opportunities are waiting to happen. Number two, surround yourself with good, solid people who want the best for you. Thank you for sharing that. And also, if you want to share more stories, we're all about stories on this podcast. So please, anything from your memory box. I've been at this a while. I know that you've done a lot of things. You were in music. We're going to get into that. Also, you did accounting as well and payroll management and all these things that I did not think that you'd be into, or maybe you had to do it. I'm not sure. And I'm just wondering, is it because of upbringing? Did your parents encourage you and say, okay, stay away from the arts. Make sure you do something more quote unquote practical like my parents. I would love to jump into that. Parents were supportive, but I also came from a military background. Mm. My dad was military, so he moved all the time. (laughs) My mother saw music as a way to socialize me, to get me into a group activity that I might be able to make friends in. That was as far as she thought it would go. She was really surprised when my band instructor came back and said, well, she's got some real talent. We want to try to encourage that. She's reluctantly supportive for a little bit, but she really got into it. However, when it came to college, she was very adamant that I needed to be able to earn a living instead of just relying on my musical background. So I couldn't major in music, but I decided what I wanted to do because, oh, I am so old. I'm older than (laughs) her. When I went to college, there was this brand new field you might have heard of called computers. (laughs) So I decided I wanted to be a computer science major. So I did that for a couple of years. And the only reason I quit from computer science was because they wouldn't let me have my music minor. And I wanted my music minor. So I flounced over to the business school and took the very first thing at the top of the list, which was accounting. Is that seriously how you chose accounting? Out of sheer peak. I don't know how else to describe it. I love you even more now. This is amazing. I feel like that's something that I would have done too in college. Yeah. First one, I'll just check the first one that comes up and I don't care what it is. Then I had all of my ducks in a row. I had a business degree. I had an accounting degree, although I cared nothing about it. I ended up getting cool jobs out of it because the payroll management thing that I did was for a cheerleader supply company. What does that mean? They made uniforms for cheerleaders and they ran the NCA cheerleading camps all over the country. So I got to pay cheerleaders. 
to cheer. That is amazing. This is my first time ever hearing of a job like that. It's a pretty great job. And I loved it. I've had some great jobs over the years. I've had some pretty crappy ones. But honestly, every job I've had has had some kind of thing about it that's helped me in my writing. The last 10 years of my day job career, I started out as a web manager. And then I became a corporate communications specialist. And then I became a crisis manager in corporate communications. That allowed me to master web design and any kind of promotional printing and design. And then it also let me do videos and it let me learn media training. So that's a great course for all of you writers out there. If you want to take that path, corporate communications will fully prepare you. I'm very impressed because I feel like there's a lot of people that are really good at leaning towards one end, which is the more practical, basically the jobs that you had and aren't that interested. I just feel like a lot of people who are really good at that side are not that interested or that even if they are interested, aren't that strong at the creative side. It's like one or the other, but you are a master at both worlds. Did you ace math? Was math your best subject? They always tell you that math and music are related and they are, but I was terrible at math. What? I was terrible at it. I am dyslexic with numbers. How are you so good with all the computer science and all that? I thought that needed some math. It did, which is another reason why I escaped to accounting, which was basically adding and subtracting. I like the way your brains function. Yes. Now, I want to go back to when you did all these jobs, you mentioned that there were some horrible ones. Could you share some awful stories that you've had with awful jobs? One of the jobs that I took after my payroll job, Job, they wanted me to become their insurance investigator. I didn't want to do it, but I thought, well, maybe it's interesting. I was basically having to go and spy on people who they thought might be cheating on their injuries. That would be a great story. It's a great story, but it's emotionally destroying for me because I want to help these people. I ended up being one of those people who cried with people over their wounded arm or their bad back. And I always signed off on everything. That job did not last long. (laughs) I saved the company no money. (laughs) You're the sweetest. Not according to my company. (laughs) No, because I mean, you were wonderful at helping them lose money. But hey, you gained some amazing karma. These are such fascinating jobs. I think you're probably the first person in our show for over 120 episodes where I'm talking about these kind of jobs. And it's just so fascinating to me. Has that story ever gone into any of your stories? The only thing that maybe I took from it was how to conduct surveillance, (laughs) which is an odd skill to have. I was able to do some computer searching at a time when Google wasn't around. I could research people's backgrounds and do that sort of stuff. I'm kind of halfway qualified for a PI license now. This is cool. That's awesome. I did all kinds of stuff. At one point, I was working at a, a tax filing service in the middle of the night in a really dangerous part of town where they would have to lock us into the building every night. What? Yeah, it was a job. It wasn't a fun job. I'm thinking about how many jobs back to back and these sound like crazy hours. 
I'm assuming you were writing at that time. Not until, gosh, I'm trying to remember which job. I think toward the very tail end of the cheerleader job was when I actually started writing. I had a lot of jobs before then because I didn't really know what I wanted to do other than music because I played a lot with symphonies. Until then, that was where I made the switch over. We're going to wiggle in a little bit about the symphonies. You were playing clarinet. I think when you have a passion about something, it's hard to let it go especially when you have full-time jobs and all that. But a lot of people, they let time get in the way and they actually start dropping their hobbies. When I was back in Lubbock, which is where I spent some time before I came to the Dallas area, I was working part-time and then I was also in the symphony full-time. So I taught lessons and I also worked these weird jobs. (laughs) And then I would do, usually we did about two concerts a month. And then sometimes we would do, you know, like summer concert series and things like that. So I would get paid per concert. And I did that for a couple of years. Then I moved to Dallas and I auditioned and got in with the Dallas Wind Symphony, which, which was really neat. But at the time they were just starting out and they really couldn't pay anybody very much. So that I had to get a full-time job on top of that. And then around that same time was when my friend dumped me at the writer's conference. <laughs> so I played with the Dallas Wind Symphony for about six months, not even a year, I don't think, before I decided I had to make a decision. You can't have two really time-intensive hobbies like that and a full-time job. You just can't do it because uh, I was practicing four hours a day, which you have to do or what I had to do to stay at the professional level. I just decided one, one day I've got to pick one. I'm going to pick the writing. I'm just going to go for it. And I just stopped. Because I didn't want to play badly. At a certain level, you just can't step down from it. It's harder. I completely get that. I used to train for piano. I remember there was this one girl who was always like logging in her times eight hours a day or 10 hours a day. I'm like, who the hell has time to play eight to 10 hours a day? First of all, I think she might have been fibbing a little bit. But she was always that example that the teacher would always say, everybody needs to practice at least six hours a day, at least eight hours a day. It was so rigid. I honestly couldn't even stay on. I loved the music itself, but uh, the thing I didn't love was the amount of time I had to spend just keeping those skills honed. I also realized at some point I was never going to be as good as I wanted to be. There's this really thin line at the very top when you're either really good or you're just good. And I just didn't have what was that spark to make me great. How did you recognize that for yourself? I had so many friends who were great. I practiced more than they did, but I could never achieve quite what they were getting out of it. And I thought, well, maybe this isn't really what I'm supposed to be doing. Those people went on to Juilliard. They are now professional musicians. One of my friends is in the Marine Band in Washington. (laughs) I'm not there because I don't think that was in my cards. How was that emotionally for you? Well, it was not bad, weirdly enough. Was it like a sense of relief? Yeah, a little bit. Because like you were saying, there's so much pressure. And especially at the professional level, you have to keep looking for work and looking for more jobs and doing auditions. In symphonies, clarinet is the most common instrument. You're talking about going to an audition and there's 500 people auditioning for one chair. Your chances are slim anyway. If you're going to get it, it's kind of a miracle. Wow, 500 people for one chair. That's insane. Do you miss it? I 
don't, I enjoy music. I still go to concerts. I still enjoy listening to music. The few times I've tried to play, I only got mad at myself. I wanted to be able to pick it up and just be able to do what I was doing. And instead, I was like, wow, I've got to relearn all of this. And I thought, do I have the time and patience? No, I don't. I got work to do. No, I completely get that. For you, do you notice that there's a difference or similarity between your writing and the time when you were playing music and really into it? I think there's a certain similarity because at the best moments when I was playing, I was free. I wasn't thinking about what I was doing. It's very much puts you in the moment. You can't be thinking about what's coming next or what you just did. You're just focused on the moment. I think that that actually carries over really well into writing because so much of the time we're just in our heads doubting ourselves. Oh, I don't think this is good. Oh, I can't do this scene. The scene is going to be terrible. If you focus on the moment, you can get that same passion, that same energy. I really value what I learned from music teaching me about sort of that inner game that you're playing. That's making me miss piano because I ended up moving and I didn't bring my piano with me. So I love how you put that two together. And now I would love to get a little bit more into your writing. You had a lot of jobs. How were you able to squeeze and make time for your writing? I think it changed a little bit as my circumstances changed simply because when I first got into the writing in a more serious way, I was doing two books a year. I'm a fast writer and I always have been, or at least fast drafter, slower reviser. I can do things pretty quickly on the first run through. So for me, it was more about, okay, I just need to have an hour here, an hour there, just carve out little slices of time where I can sit down and do this for an hour. And I could do that pretty well for about the first five or six years. But then it got more intense on both fronts. I began to get more contracts and uh, the deadlines were tighter. And I also got continually moved up in the ranks at work. So especially in corporate communications, that job at the top end is a 24-7, 365 job. You don't know when you're going to be called in the middle of the night to go fly somewhere and do something. So it can be really stressful and difficult, especially when you have to also do those deadlines and the deadlines don't care. I just developed a a system and my system was, it's not for everyone. Lord knows it probably shaved years off my life. My office was about a 30 minute drive at the best of times in Dallas traffic from my house. At the worst of times, it was an hour and a half. I would get up at five and I would be at the coffee shop before six and I would write until I had to be at my desk at 8.30 because my office was just down the street. So I would go every morning and I would put in somewhere between two and three hours of work. And then I would take my lunch hour. I would also work. Then I would stay after work for two hours and work some more. Partly this was just because of the traffic patterns. It was easier to get home if I did that, easier to get to work and home. But at the same time, it also was my quiet time in my brain. It was the best 
best time for me to write. So after I discovered this, I stuck to that schedule pretty religiously from about 2005, maybe 2004, up to the time I quit that job in 2012. Rachel! Oh my God, you're such a beast. That is insane. Some of the people that listen to this podcast may know this, but when I go to writers' conferences, they call me the machine. Because I get up in the morning before the conference starts and I go to the coffee shop and I, and I write, you know, that's what I do. How do you get through bouts of exhaustion? Coffee. And also just sometimes it's just sheer desperation because at the, the height, which I hope never to reach again, I was doing five books in a year, plus a full-time job that averaged 60 hours a week or more. How the hell does that even work? I know you've just walked me through it, but I still don't get it. I I don't know anyone else that has a schedule like that or is able to do that. Well, but I will tell you, it does have a toll. I was going to say, how is your health during that time? About two years ago now, I was going full steam and all of a sudden one day happened to be my birthday. I woke up and I and I had this terrific pain. It was in my neck and in my shoulder, my arm. And I was like, I don't know what to do. And I thought, well, maybe it's nothing. And I took some leave because <laughs> that's what you do. And then I ended up calling the emergency room and saying, so if I have these symptoms and they get really quiet and they're like, why don't you hang up the phone and call 911? Because <laughs> they thought I was having a heart attack. I was not, full disclosure. But when I got there, because I stupidly did not call the ambulance, I drove myself. I got there and they kept me there all day. They couldn't give me any pain medication because I drove myself. I will never do that again. But they discovered I had five herniated discs in my neck. Are you freaking kidding me? It was so painful. I can't even tell you. But the first question the doctor asked me was, do you work on a laptop? And I said, all the time. And he said, are you always looking down at your screen? And I said, yes. And he said, that doesn't happen anymore, which my entire work ethic just imploded. How do you continue what you do then? See, saying to change the style of the desk to have those stand-up desks? He said, as long as your screen is at eye level and you're putting no strain on your neck and shoulders, you can continue. So I had to really go through and look at what I was doing. And I had to ergonomically reform everything. So for two years, I haven't had a laptop. I finally got one again, but I did all of my work at home in front of my desktop computer. And it slowed me down. It slowed me down a lot. But that was the price I paid for so many years of abusing my body to get the deadlines done. And that's fine. I understand it now. I just didn't see it coming. My mind is blown that you had five herniated discs in your neck and you didn't even feel anything until that morning. They said that was the morning that the bulge got so extreme that it, it compressed the nerves in my right arm. My whole right arm had gone numb. I couldn't feel my fingers. None of that. It was just gone. It took a good three weeks before I got feeling back in my hands. So it has a cost somewhere down the line. So I always try to tell people now there are nice products you can get. There's a thing called a roost stand, like a chicken roost. You can put your laptop on this little portable stand and it'll raise it up to eye level. Mm. And then if you use a separate keyboard, you can keep your all your ergonomics correct. So I've learned how to do it better. For the longest, I thought I was immortal and 
Nothing could touch me. <laughs> I am so sorry that happened. Now that I think about it, I'm shocked that you actually got away with it for so long. When you think mm-hmm. about it, for all those years, I'm not happy that it happened. I'm sad that it happened for you, but also I'm glad that it was caught before it gets even worse. And now you know how to properly fix it. That is such a real issue and a real problem. And I think it's so important for this community, not only to know, you know, what it's like with the writer's journey, but also things to help them along the way that will help their health and make their bodies last. Now that we've got into that and how it can affect your health with your work wise, because you just kept going and kept going. Are you still balancing day jobs or is that something that you put aside and you're good just writing? I was really fortunate. I I should probably back up a little bit and tell you how much I failed because I failed a lot. After my totally lightning strike first book, which happened to be a work for hire, by the way, back in the days when work for hire was not cool. Nobody respected you. Do you mind going into that a little bit more? Yeah, the the editor that I met was actually looking for someone to write a tie-in book for a gaming company. It was a role-playing game, kind of like Dungeons & Dragons, but it was the Shadow World game. I became the very first Shadow World novel. The thing was, I didn't play tabletop games, and I had no idea what I was doing, even putting a book together. But somehow I, I managed to figure it out. They, the, by the way, they sent me the game. That was my background. So after that, I realized, oh, I think I have more to say. And so I started out writing some stuff. And I, sure enough, I, I ended up selling t- to Zebra Books in New York. And I did four books with them. And I thought I was doing great until... After the fourth book, I start pitching them for the fifth book and they're like, no, thank you. Did they give you a reason why? Yeah, I wasn't selling. I just wasn't selling. And they were like, yeah, we just think we can do better elsewhere. They wished me luck and all that. But I didn't know what to do. And I called my agent, who at the time I had very little to do with because I was a baby novelist. And I called him up and I crying and I'm telling him this story. And I don't think he even stopped typing a letter to someone else. It's lovely. (laughs) But he understood exactly where I was. And so when I finished my crying, he said, "Okay, well, this is what we'll do. We'll change your name. And I said, what? Because I'd never heard of this. And he said, yeah, he said, just pick a pin name you want. We'll restart you somewhere else. Okay. I had gotten married. I used my married name and went and restarted again. It just happened to be romantic suspense, which I quickly discovered I was bad at. I was so bad because I couldn't stop making it weird. (laughs) I had to do paranormal elements. And surprisingly, people did not flock to the book in West Texas about reincarnated dogs. I don't understand why. No, I do understand why now. But, uh, uh, you know, true story. I did two books for them and they, they said, you know, we love you, but really it's too weird for us. So I was back again and I ended up having a few fallow years where I really couldn't sell anything. And it wasn't until 2000 and two that Rachel Kane actually got started. And that was because I had a thing that I'd been kicking around for five years before that about a woman who could control the weather. And nobody wanted it until suddenly there was an urban fantasy genre. I got lucky that I was the leading edge of the urban fantasy genre. So there was no urban fantasy genre before no. that. Oh, wow. Laurel Hamilton had just had maybe th- two or three books out in her series. And Jim Butcher actually started like six months before my first book came out. 
but weirdly enough blurbed me, which was weird because I knew him under another name, but he didn't realize he was blurbing me under my new name. So I was completely <laughs> blind. It was great. But, you know, I was in that initial group with Kelly Armstrong and Kim Harrison. It was nice company to be in. The genre really goes from there. About three years later, I had the opportunity to pitch some young adult stuff. And I'd been reading young adult and I really liked it, but I wasn't sure I could do it. And when I pitched the young adult stuff, it just so happened I went back to my first love, which was vampires at the right time for vampires to come back again. So I pitched the Morganville vampires books and that ended up being a 15 book series. I just never saw that coming, but that was when peak dress came because I was doing two of those a year plus at least two urban fantasy books a year and sometimes a third on top of that. Oh my God. And this is also during the time when you were getting promoted during your full-time job. Rachel, what is going on? (laughs) But you know, that's when you're feeling the most success. So it's really hard to step back from that. That's true. So you either lean in or go home, I guess. But I've had such luck and timing and, and I've been really... I've been really happy with that. And now I'm I'm into thrillers, which I've always wanted to do. And I think I hit with the right thing at the right time again. So that's lucky. Oh my gosh. Well, congratulations. I'm very happy for you because it is, I noticed just talking to guests, I didn't realize you can also write the best work possible, but if it's not the right timing, it's not the right timing. You got to shelf that book. That's just so heartbreaking to me because all that work and that time, the effort that you poured into the work over and over again, even though you wrote a masterpiece, it's because other people are not ready yet to accept it. It's tough. So I'm so glad to hear all these wonderful things right now. The thing is, in writing, writing is a unique business in that there's so much of it you can't control. You can only control what you do and nothing exactly. else. Yes, yes. And so from the earliest days, I thought I have to control my expectations. So I've set my expectations super low all the time because that way, if it fails, I don't feel as bad. I try not to go into anything with the idea that it's just going to be this knockout success and everybody's going to love me. There's 15% of the people you're never going to get. I feel like you really have to understand how much of it is just out beyond your control and your sphere of influence. Here's how I cope with it, which is really weird. We love weird. I make things. So are we talking about like DIY? Kind of. I make videos. I make all my own book videos, book trailers. I do my own websites. I do all of my printed giveaways. I do these really cool lenticular bookmarks. Wow. Just because I know how to do it and it's something I can control. And at the end of the, I have a product I can be proud of. At the same time, it helps me promotionally, but I try to not get tied up over the things I can't control. Oh my gosh. That is so smart. Before we move on, I do want to tap a little bit about the promotional side. That is super smart. Is that something where you feel you do the best job at promoting and getting the word out about your book? Or do you feel like that's something that your team is able to carry out on their own? I am always aware of how many people they have to serve. So 
I never depend completely on my publishing team, although they're great at what they do. I know that they have 50 other people who have books coming out in the next six months and they have to split attention. There's just no other way. Also, I don't really know how much budget they have. I only know how much budget I have. So what we try to do is I coordinate with them and I tell them, here's my plans. Here are what conventions I'm going to. Here is what I'm making for the promotion of the book. Let me know if there's anything I can help you with. So I'm proactive about it. I was going to say, you are so proactive. Well, I I think if you don't, because I've seen so many people disappointed because you really don't have a guarantee of getting the budget to do a 15 city tour and today show or whatever it is. You're probably never going to get it. I mean, there's very few people get that. So you have to figure out what your expectations are and how you can best apply yourself to the process. If you're not good at doing radio or television, don't do it. I'd always tell people, do what you're good at. If you're great at going to conventions and talking to people, that's your gold standard. I know people that have made their entire career out of just standing around at a table and talking to people. It's great. When you mentioned that you tell your publishing team that these are the conventions I'm going to just so you have a heads up. This is something I'm super curious about because I, I've never actually asked anybody about this. And it just hit me right now because you just brought it up. Is that something that usually the authors have to arrange for themselves to be at certain conventions? Or is that something that you can ask your publicist team to be like, hey, I love these conventions. I used to be a fan of them. Would you be able to pitch me for those conventions? I'm not even sure how that world even works. So how does that work with through your experience? I think it's different in every genre okay in every category for instance in science fiction science fiction is a very bottom-up culture that I mean the conventions were run by fans they were organized by fans pretty much they would invite any authors in the area, but they couldn't pay your expenses usually unless you were the guest of honor. So you had to know that if they ask you to be a panelist, they're probably not going to pay for your hotel or your travel. You have to balance these things. Maybe you can do them within driving distance. Maybe you don't want to do it outside of that. It's a little different in romance. Romance has a very different structure in that everybody pays their way. There's very few authors I know other than the very top tier who get their stuff comped or paid for by the publishers. That just doesn't, they don't send you. Even San Diego Comic Con, there are still some people that get the full express service to go to Comic Con. Most of us have to fight for a pro badge, which means you have to be sitting at your computer the day the window opens and you have about two hours to grab one. What do you mean? Like it's roulette pretty much. Oh, you sit down. They have a limited number of professional badges that you get for free. If you don't get one, you have to try buy a fan badge. That's almost impossible to do at that point. So you either go to San Diego on a pro badge usually or you don't go because it's just so hard to get into. But even then you don't get defrayment usually, or at least not much defrayment on hotel and airfare or whatever. You have to figure out your budget of how much can I afford to do like that. And if it's important to you, budget for it. It's important to me to do San Diego. It's important for me to do, I pick three or four conventions during the year. It's really important for me to do. 
and I try to make it a variety. So I do a young adult festival and I do Comic-Con and I might do a couple of local conventions and maybe a library convention. And you choose those specifically because of the track record from last time where you realized those were the ones that gave you, I guess, most positive responses? Partly, yes. And partly it's just, have I seen the benefit of that appearance? For instance, I get a benefit from Comic-Con because those people stand in line to get signed books in the middle of an exhibit hall that's packed with other things to do. So I know they're dedicated readers. They're going to go out and they're going to evangelize about my books. Then I, I go to the young adult festivals because I'm directly interfacing with the teens. And that's important to me. And then I go to library festivals because I know those librarians are a huge block of buyers. If they like you and they like what you're saying about your book, they're going to order more. So I'm strategic about it. You're so smart. I'm like, you could even be like a business manager for many authors. You approach this very cleverly. I feel like most authors should definitely tune into your episode and learn <laughs> tips from you. No joke. You, you could have your own consulting job. I think that if somebody contacts you and says, we'll pay your way, okay, I'll look at the convention, see what other people have to say about it before I commit. If it looks good and if they're paying my way, then normally I will commit to it. But if it's something I have to spend my money to do, it's just you've got to strategically figure out what's the best use of my funds this year. And what am I going to get out of it? I hear some authors are like, okay, I'll go to conferences if they allow me to sell my books, because that's where a lot of them are able to make more income as a writer, because it's difficult. Are you making more book sales, having your books available at these signings, the fans can buy it from you? Or is it via online, getting the word out via social media, and you notice the book sales are up on whether it's Amazon, Barnes & Noble? It hardly ever is easy to connect the two as far as appearance doesn't necessarily translate to bump in sales because it's you're talking about a large number and a small needle move. But you can break the data down into regional, which sometimes you can. Some of the publishers will have tools that will allow you to do that. I can see, well, where am I not selling? Maybe I should go there. Oh, smart. I don't necessarily just want to go and do fan service. I want to go places they don't know me. My assistant, who's so lovely. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> my assistant is my assistant because she contacted me from a very tiny city in Iowa. And she said, do you ever do library visits? And I said, yes, but... I would need to have the money to fly out there. You'd have to provide me with travel and hotel. And I don't know if you can afford to do that in such a small location. She said, okay. And she, and she said, would you come if I put together a tour for you and got the funding? Mm. I said, well, I, as a matter of fact, I would because I've never been to Iowa. I don't have a lot of presence there. So she came back couple of days later and had set up an entire tour across the state with libraries and had gotten the funding for it. What? She's, know, she's amazing. Well, hello, Sarah. How are you doing? <laughs> she's amazing. Don't give anybody her last name. They might fight you for her. <laughs> she sounds incredible. Wow. I wouldn't have either. And, you know, I didn't expect her to do that, but it turned out to be a wonderful thing. And I discovered something really valuable along the way, which was if I go to small towns, it's a much bigger deal oh, than yes. it is if you go to New York City. Yawn, they get five writers a day at this book bookstore, they don't care. If you're at Rockwell City, Iowa, there's going to be a hundred people show up. I think it's such an interesting thing to think about that you can a 
adjust your expectations, you have to separate your ego from it and say, yeah, it would be great if I could sign at the biggest bookstore in Manhattan, but how many people am I going to get there? I would have never thought to go to the smaller towns. In my head, I would be like, oh, well, no one really knows me there. So what's the point? But hello, duh, we have that control where we can show up and make them care and get them excited. All these amazing nuggets of wisdom. Thank you so much. Sure. We're talking about, I was trying to remember the question that sparked this. Sorry. The original question was, do I sell my own books? And the answer is almost never because I don't want to compete with bookstores. What I do is I ask them, do you have a book vendor at this convention? Or if the library can't afford to order in the books, I say, can you partner with a bookstore to come sell books? I want to benefit those booksellers. But I think it's important because especially if you are traditionally published, the booksellers make a lot of their money at conventions by selling the books of authors who come there. So I always go to them and say, can I set up a signing at your booth? And I think that helps everybody in the industry versus just me. If I brought my books, well, they might not go to the bookstore booth at all. I never even thought of that. That's something that never even came up in my mind. Well, clearly, because I'm not a published author. It's just so fascinating and so interesting. And that's also such a good mindset to have. It's to help lift the entire community overall. I get that. That was an amazing crash course. Thank you for that. I wasn't really aware of all of this. So this is very helpful. And this is like the first time I think we've ever really dug deep into this topic. And I feel like that would really help a lot of listeners and get them really excited too. So thank you for that. And if there's anything else you want to add, please do. One of the sort of debates that goes around quite frequently, and I understand both sides of the debate about school and library visits, because this is a big thing in the children's and middle grade and teen books. We rely on those school visits a lot to get our books in front of people. And I understand some people want to charge speaking fees. I understand why they want to. Their time is valuable. Of course it is. I typically do not. And sometimes I get flack for that, but I do it for a reason. I do it for a reason because Often those schools and libraries are the hardest hit in this particularly difficult time. Their budgets get cut. They can't order books. I always talk to them first and say, what's your budget like? Are you having to order fewer books now because you just don't have the the resources to do these things? And they almost always tell me, well, yeah, we've had to cut back by 50% or something. If I'd visit classrooms, I always bring books and I'd give them away because those kids often don't ever get things for free, especially in poor schools. I make sure those kids all get something because it means something to them. I understand why people want to get paid for their time. I feel like when I'm in a public institution, that's my giving back. People can throw stones at me. It's fine. Wow. That was incredible. That was a good perspective to think about. That is also another topic that we haven't even touched on before. I'm even going to re-listen to our conversation to let it soak in even more. Thank you, Rachel, for walking us through that and for bringing that up. I really appreciate that. I would love to now segue into your actual writing and what it is that you're really excited about right now. I have so many things I'm always excited about. (laughs) I'm loving writing thrillers because I have a very dark side. That seems unlikely, I know. 
I am super, super into the thrillers. And so I'm, I'm writing the third book of my thriller series right now with Thomas and Mercer. And the first two have done tremendously well. The second one actually hit number one in the country, which was amazing. I'm working on that third one. I just did chapter outlines today and I'm all excited. At the same time, I'm also writing the, now I'm on the fifth book of the great library series in young adult because I'm a huge alternate history fan history in general but I sort of had this idea of what would have happened if the great library of Alexandria never burned what would the world be like and how can I make that relevant to the modern world and so I've done this whole five volume well it's going to finish up at five volumes series about the way the world has changed because of that and so that's one thing so I've got book five of that that's due I'm not even worried about you. That's why I'm like laughing. I'm like, this lady's going to finish this in two seconds. Oh, I wish. My time turner burned up. I can't use it anymore. Oh, it just no. And then I've got a series I'm doing with Anna Gire, and we are just having a blast. It's an outer space science fiction young adult series that started on Twitter. You girls were just chatting? Yeah, well, not even that. I had started working on a proposal and then I kind of got stuck a little bit. So I, I went on and did something else. And then I was on Twitter and Anne said, I really want to write a book about a young woman in love with an intelligent spaceship. And I said, I have that proposal. I, I mean, how unlikely is that? And right. she said, what? I sent it to her to read and she came back and she said, this is great, but here's what you should do. And she was so right on. And so I said, well, you want to write it together? And so we jumped in and we did this thing. It's a three book series with Harper Collins now, and we've already finished the second book and we're starting the third one. So, um, it's crazy. So we've got, I've got three series running simultaneously. You're insane. Again, I know you shared all your secrets and told us how you did it, but I still don't understand. I'm still baffled. I'm like, wait, what? Well, congratulations on all those exciting projects. I'm so excited for you. And it's just so fun because just especially hearing before how much joy you had talking about that and how much fun you're having. It's so, it was so infectious. I couldn't stop smiling. I love hearing when there's genuine enthusiasm about current projects. And it's also very inspiring for a community too, to know, okay, hopefully whatever your work in progress is, it should bring you that kind of enthusiasm and that passion and joy. And, and if not, maybe it's not the right thing to be working on. Also, I know that you're a badass and you fly through the first drafts so quickly. But what about difficult scenes? Has there been a scene out of all your books that you've been working on, whether it's current or in the past, that you still remember till this day? You're like, oh my gosh, it was like pulling teeth. I do. I think I'm up to, yikes, I've lost count. Isn't that sad? Uh, 52 books. What I've found is every book every single book, I realized that I don't know how to write a book. What? Because every single one has a problem I've never faced before, whatever it is. It's always something I have to overcome. Maybe it's the voice. Maybe this time it's the plot. Maybe this time it's <laughs> the characters just won't cooperate. Maybe I, it's, it's something every time. And I've learned that that's just part, a normal part of the process. Um, I can't beat myself up about it. I just have to say, okay, this isn't working for me right now. I'm going to go watch a movie and come back. I'm going to go play a game and come back. I'll get 
my mind completely in a different headspace and then come back to it because that's the only thing that works. Because otherwise, if I just grind on it, I might get something out, but it's probably not very good. And I'm going to have to re write it anyway. So it's not that I don't work. I think part of the work and a large part of the work for me happens in the back of my brain. So my problems get solved when I'm not thinking about them. Commuting was great for that. I would be stuck in the car and I would just get the solution to my problem while I'm stuck in the car. It's almost like a Zen meditation. So do showers work for you as well? Not so much, weirdly enough. I can't do it in the shower. I can only do it when I'm in a car or I don't even do it when I'm on walks. I can't think of anything while I'm on walks, but I can think of it when I'm driving and I can think of it when I'm doing something else that's more almost muscle memory that allows me sort of sink into this wrestling. Okay, there's one book and it was the fifth, yeah, the fifth Weather Warden book back in about 2005, 2006. And this is not my fault, exactly, (laughs) but I had been diagnosed with, I'm here, I am sharing my personal life again, sorry. No, we love it. I've been diagnosed with breast cancer. So, you know, that'll put a hole in your schedule. Wait, when were you diagnosed with this? 2005, I think, was the year I got diagnosed. And I had surgery and I had radiation after that. And But during all of that, you know, my publisher was incredibly sweet to me. But they need, still needed to get the book out. And I'd already turned it in, the first draft. But like I said, my first, first drafts are always kind of... The edits came back and I was on painkillers and a lot of them. And so I rewrote that book on painkillers. <laughs> and then I got the proofs and the proofs were utterly garbage. I could not believe it. At some point, looked at my husband and I said, what team of monkeys wrote this? Because <laughs> I didn't write this. And he said, you totally did write that. I watched you write it. I had to call my publisher and see, you know, in tears and say, I have to make a lot of changes to this. And they're like, how many changes? Because at the proof stage, you're not supposed to do more than I think 10% of the manuscript because they have to relay it out otherwise. And I said, mm, 40%. <laughs> I said, I'll pay for the extra charge for laying it out again. Because I knew that was going to be a thing. And they actually came back and were super kind to me about it because I'd never asked for that before. I got it. I didn't have to pay for it, but that's really unusual. Usually you have to have a penalty for that kind of craziness. That was the hardest one. And I think it's reflected in that book. There's a, there's a certain bitter energy to it and a lot of darkness, just this feeling that everything's collapsing in on you. And that was kind of where I was in my head, which is not normal for me. It's funny when I talk to people, they say, yeah, that was not my favorite one. And I'm like, yeah, it's not my favorite either. (laughs) Oh, wow. Rachel, stop me if I'm prying too much, but you were diagnosed. Are you still working through it? Or were they saying, oh, you had the okay that you recovered? I recovered fully and I had 10 years of nothing. They pretty much certify you as recovered after, I think, seven years for this. But I recently had some extra tests done and discovered that I have that dreaded cancer gene, which is so much not fun. Is that the BRCA? Yeah, BRCA2. The effect of that is it drastically increases your likelihood of recurrence. When you talked about earlier, I actually have been very proactive about addressing it. And so I'm kind of in the middle of that. It's weird how fine I am with it now. (laughs) 
because I went through the other thing, which was a shock. And so now this is kind of like, yeah, this is what I got to do. And I'm good with it. BRCA2. I remember because I was an actor before podcasting and one of my writers, she found out that she had the gene from her mom, also wrote a book about it. And that was the first time I was aware about what that gene is. And correct me if I'm wrong. Is this when you choose just to be preventative, you can remove the breasts? Okay. Yeah. In my case, it's breasts and uterus. I have equal risk and it's elevated to the point where it's sort of ridiculous. When you're talking about the 50 to 65% risk range, just do it. I thought the same thing. It's a higher chance to survive if you do remove. So that is something that you are going through currently. I'm in between. I had one thing done and I'm getting ready to do the other thing. Rachel, you're incredible. I just want to let you know, really, you are a hero. You are a superwoman. Really, thank you so much for opening up about that and even sharing this with our community. I think it's super important to, you know, for everybody to understand that these things are going to happen. I see people sometimes and and usually they're relatively young in the business where they're like, I would never let anything stop me. I, I would write with broken arms, you know, and all this. I'm like, yeah, you would. But the question is, at some point, you have to learn to balance, just like you balance your work and your family life and all that. You've got to learn to balance writing and everything else. If it's a matter of your health, then I think you have to choose your health. I know that's hard to do sometimes. I certainly would have had a very hard time of it probably even back 10, 15 years ago. But I've done this enough now. I recognize my own fallibility enough that I know I'm not going to be at my best. So I flat out rearranged my schedule with my publisher's help. They have been super nice about it so that I can have proper recovery time. And that's been great. This is something I've been reading about and also talk about with family where stress can really worsen everything. I mean, overall, Mm -hmm. just health. I know the publishers were kind of going around the scheduling and just making sure to accommodate and make sure that to be as helpful as possible, which good. I'm glad that they're doing that. But the thing is, it sounds like you're not slowing down at all with the amount you're working Mm -hmm. on three freaking series. It's insane to me. I was not aware the time that you were sharing that, that what you're also currently going through. Isn't that a high amount of pressure and stress with deadlines is that going to worsen recovery process? I don't think it is because weirdly enough, when I have these six solid weeks of recovery after a surgery, it's the only time in 20 years that I've had a vacation. What? Oh my God, Rachel, we got to take you on a real vacation. Okay. This is not okay. I get to lay on a couch. I get to watch movies. I read books. It's amazing. And I'm king of the world for like six weeks. It's it's fantastic. My eyes are watery right now and I'm dabbing the corners of my tear ducts. (laughs) You are such a light in this world. And that's no pressure to say, oh my God, keep up the positive attitude. But no, just how you naturally are is already so infectious and really remarkable. Thank you so much for sharing that. And oh, well, thank you. I know you are. I tried piano once. <laughs> My fingers won't even do an octave. I have such tiny little stubby fingers. They're like T Rex fingers. They're ridiculous. That's so cute. And I've always wanted to play the piano. While you're talking earlier, I was like, she, she plays the piano. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, overcome with, with emotion because I love piano so much. Uh, 
I, you played with the symphony, please. I'm like in awe. I'm like, oh my God, she's so cool. <laughs> and she's basically giving those cheerleaders all they needed. Thank you so much for this because it's so much fun to do this. And I love talking about writing and I love talking to two writers. And one of the things that I always put out a public call on is people can contact me via my website. I have a contact form there. If they have questions for me, I'm on Twitter all the time. I don't do Facebook that much. It's my downfall. (laughs) But Twitter, my DMs are open. If you want to email me questions or you want to DM me that I will always answer unless I'm recovering from surgery, obviously. Obviously, I try to help people out if they have questions about the business, if they want to talk through something, if they feel like they're not doing the right things. I can't tell them if they are or they aren't, but I can maybe make them feel better about it. You are so kind. And also, I just got so into our conversation, I literally forgot about our listener questions until you just said, if anybody has questions, I'm like, oh shit, this is such a rude interjection segue out of a very important conversation, which again, thank you again for opening up and sharing everything with us. Would you mind if I squeeze in some listener questions? I'll just pick out the top two. Sure. We have one from Kate Larking and she says, she wonders if you find it challenging to write in so many diverse genres under one name? Or do you think that your publishers do a good job packaging your books so that the mysteries stand apart from the fantasy books? And we've got several of our listeners who jumped in and was like, great question. I'm also very curious about that. Thirding this question. Yeah, so they would love to know. It's an interesting question because I'm not sure the answer is universal. I got enough notoriety in my urban fantasy and then on top of that for my young adult, I actually asked my publisher when I went to young adult, do you want me to change my name? Because I had experience, right? But they said, no, we think some of your adult readers might also enjoy your young adult things. So we want to have that crossover audience as well. So I thought, okay, well, that's fine. And they did a good job of making sure both sides of the equation heard about what was going on. I work with different publishers. And so Thomas and Mercer does an awesome job, again, of packaging the mysteries like mysteries. So they look very distinct. That doesn't always happen, but I think it happened really beautifully in the case of this series. I wasn't sure if they wanted Rachel Kane or not, but since Rachel Kane has a track record that's pretty solid, I think that tends to translate. It's much harder, I think, if you are trying to build your brand Uh, because your brand has to start somewhere and it needs to have a fairly intense focus to build it up to the point where you can jump to something else if you want to. So I think that it's helpful in the beginning to focus on one thing and then you can start expanding that circle after that. But you got to have a circle and that's hard to build in the first place. As we all know, Mm -hmm. that audience is difficult. It's hard to reach people. You don't know where they're coming from necessarily. And honestly, word of mouth still to this day, despite all the innovations in social media, despite everything else. Word of mouth is still the primary driver of people's book buying habits, and you can't control that. So you do what you can. 
But I also think you have to pursue your passions. If you're passionate about doing romances and science fiction, you should do it. My writing partner, Anna Aguirre, does both. She writes completely different series and does them extraordinarily well. I think that we all contain some measure of multitudes. And we have to decide strategically first what's best for us and our career at that point, but also emotionally what's best for us. Because if we're not getting fulfilled emotionally with it, that's what readers are going to get out of it. If we're just doing it for the bucks, they're going to see it. That was so good. Rachel, there's going to be a lot of quotables that we can use for Twitter. <laughs> nice. Next one, we have Joshua Clark. I remember Joshua, actually, I think he was the one who also requested if you could come onto the show. And he's so glad that we're chatting on 88 Cups of Tea. And he thinks you are amazing. He asked, does your process change at all for writing a book depending on if it's for an adult or young adult audience? Anything defer with how you build characters or or plots for those audiences? That's an excellent question. Mm -hmm. Hi, Joshua. <laughs> no. <laughs> the short answer is no, because the writing is always the same. If you think of it this way, if you're filming a movie, does it matter whether that movie is going to be a horror movie or a romance movie? No, because you're still hiring the same number of people, right? You're still setting up your scenes in a logical order. You're still doing all of these things. You're hiring people according to their roles. The same is true for writing that book. You are still doing all the mechanical things the same. But what's different about it is that, let's face it, people live in different worlds. And it's not just necessarily the age of the characters, but also the location of the characters. Somebody in rural Georgia does not live in the same world as somebody in Manhattan. They just don't. You have to understand the world they're in and the people around them in order to build those characters correctly. But that's true whether you're talking about teens in a little West Texas town or you're talking about aliens in outer space. You've got to understand that. And that drives your plot has to come from and interact with your characters, because if you overlay one on top of the other, but it's not natural, it doesn't work. That was really solid. <sighs> Yet again, our lovely team member, whose name is also Rachel, Rachel Colbert, she is the one that helps us grab amazing tidbits and quotes for our show notes. And I have a feeling her fingers are going to hurt from this episode. Now we have Yasmin Fisher who said she's really excited for this interview and she remembers devouring the Morganville vampire series as a teenager and she would love to know what was the hardest part about writing a series with so many books in it and a craft related one you've written so many different point of views how do you switch without getting your characters voices mixed up really good questions again the 15 book series, well, it didn't set out to be a 15 book series because honestly, you only, if while your reach should exceed your grasp, I think that you can only write the number of books you're contracted to write. I planned it for, I, I my initial one was for three books. Before I got to the third book, I had a contract for six. So I knew I had a solid six books. So I planned a six book arc. Well, right around the time I was writing the sixth book, I got a contract for seven, eight, nine. Wow. That was a problem. I had no plot. <laughs> there was not an overarching <laughs> plot at that point. And I realized, okay, well, I can do 
arcs that span, you know, like I'll do a six book arc and then I'll do a three book arc and I'll continue to do three book arcs because then there's always an ending at the end of the contract, right? Because I don't want to do something that's like a 24 book series that I've planned and the publisher only wants eight. That's doing nobody any good. So I always try to only write within the span that I have, but I sometimes get it wrong because for instance, the Great Library series was only supposed to be three books. And I actually had to call my publisher and say, I can't finish this in three books. It's gonna need two more books. I just underestimated it. And that's the only time I've ever done that. As far as points of view, I think you pick the person to whom the story matters the most. That's my general rule. It's going to be somebody that you're going to center in the action. I find for me personally, because when I'm reading, I want to have a person that I would spend time with in real life because, and and it can be an anti-hero as long as there's something about them that draws me in. But I need to be able to feel comfortable with that character in the long term. And that means I know a lot about them. I can sort of channel their voice. And I've switched voices before because it just didn't work. That's one thing. But then also I've done first person point of view, which is so intimate with the character. You really have to have their voice in your head all the time. And then third person point of view. And I've even done first person present tense in the thrillers. So that's even ratcheting up the level of intimacy even more. I think you have to pick the voice that's right for the project. And not all of them are first person projects for me. Some are, some aren't. I'm not sure exactly how I arrive at that decision. I just know how much of an emotional distance do I need between the character and the reader to tell the story effectively. That was so good. Oh, okay. Now I'm going to squeeze in one last listener question from Melissa Vande Werfhorst. She says, yay, she's a huge fan of so many of your series. And she says what she would really want to know is how you kept the momentum of writing, especially if you had another day job and how and if you were able to transition into being a full-time writer. So I know we covered this, but I wonder if there's something about the way she specifically framed the question, if that inspires any other advice that you may have. Actually, I do have something because one of the things I found is the more out of control I was in my day job because you remember when I was working as a crisis manager, Mm -hmm. so you're on call all the time, the more I looked forward to diving into my stories. It took me a while to figure out why, but it's because I can control that that world. It is a function of control for me. So the more out of control I am in other aspects of my life, the better I can dive into my fiction. That's not to say you should be out of control. Don't engineer that. That's not good. I think that part of it has to do with wanting to be there, wanting to be in that story. If you're not thinking about it when you're not doing it, you may want to look at why. Because it has to have this magnetic attraction for you to keep pulling you back when your time is so limited. Otherwise, you could just go get on the PlayStation, right? So I really think that passion is such a large part of this because it's such a long process. And they're with you for most of it. There's no cheerleaders until a year after you finished it. And you have to just keep the momentum going yourself. Mm, that was so good. Okay, now before we wrap it up with our question about recommended books, I would love to, especially now having that conversation before the listener questions about what you've been going through and what you've had to learn to balance. What 
when you survey people and and the friends that you've met or just people in the industry overall and throughout your years writing and even in your day job who do you think what do you think is the most meaningful job as far as day jobs go my crisis communication job taught me an awful lot not just about myself it did but about how other people face crisis and that's something we don't usually have a bird's eye view of. You don't get to see people come off the rails and lie in person very often. Police officers do, but I think crisis managers actually see that. And it's kind of an interesting window into the world that you wouldn't normally get. Uh, so in that way, for me, it was super valuable in terms of learning things about the human condition. As far as affecting people. You know, I, there's nothing that's, that's going to substitute for the writing. The writing is such a direct conversation with a reader. And I've had just, I can't even tell you how many people come up and tell me, however unlikely it is, my, my Morganville vampire stories got them through school, got them through terrible home lives, helped them face challenges that they didn't know they could overcome. There's so many examples of that. And it's not just the young adult books. I see that also in my adult work at all, as well. I get uh, people telling me quite often, it was the last book they read with their family member or you know, all kinds of things that are just so emotional. Mm, that's so beautiful. Rachel, you are wonderful. Let's wrap it up with recommended books that you love. So many. <laughs> wow. Underrated Gems is not for everybody, but I continue to champion this book. Dia Reeves' Slice of Cherry. I think it came out at the wrong time. It was, I think today it would absolutely blow the roof off of young adult, but it kind of came out and fell off the radar very quickly because at the time, that's just not where the audience was. We talked about timing earlier. That's such a great, weird book. I love it. Also, Holly Black, White Cat. That was the first series I read in a, in a while that I put it down and I felt I can never write that wonderful a story. I really felt like this blew my head right off my shoulders because it was so innovative and so different. So I always recommend that one. New releases, I'm really looking forward to. Dread Nation, Justina Ireland, so much, so much. And then also Rebecca Roanhorse's Trail of Lightning, which I can already see is going to make me fall back in love with urban fantasy again. I'm a sucker for a really involving thriller. The Lee Child books, I own them all. I love them all. Then also I just got the Michelle McNamara's true crime book, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And I don't know if you know that story, but Michelle McNamara was a true crime author who was Patton Oswalt's wife. And she passed away toward the end of writing this book. It's about the Golden State killer slash original Night Stalker, which is in true crime terms, a super interesting and and creepy story. I'm just starting that and I'm so excited. I know it's going to keep me on nights. Oh my gosh. <laughs> In the best way. Thank you so much, Rachel. You are just a pure gem and pure joy. I had such a wonderful conversation with you and I cannot believe I basically cried during this conversation. Aww. Thank you 
so much. Thank you. This has been a remarkable conversation. I just have had the best time. Can I mention one more thing? Yes, absolutely. Please. In October, October 13th through the 20th, I will be one of the writers lecturing on board the Cruising Riders cruise out of Galveston. So you get to spend an entire week with us on the ship. And I'll be talking about an awful lot of this stuff. So you can go to cruisingwriters.com and look for the October cruise. It's October 13th through 20th. I always forget to try to tell people what's coming up like that. But no, you have to. I really think this is going to be so special. And I'm going to really enjoy talking to writers through this entire process. So come see me. We'll have that linked in your show notes page as well as your social media. I know you mentioned Facebook's not your thing. So how about Twitter? What is your Twitter handle? Wherever you best love talking with people. I am on Twitter a lot. So it's at <laughs> Rachel Kane. I'm super easy to find. I am also on Facebook. I swear I do look at it. It's just There's something about Facebook in me that, you know, it has an antagonism built in. <laughs> but I'm there. Rachel Kane fan page because I had to get a fan page. I have an Instagram account, but I suck at Instagram. So there's that. So if you're following me, I apologize. I'll do better. I hope that's my basic ones. You can find me at my website, rachelkane.com. We have a new honors website up for our science fiction young adult series called thehonorsbooks.com. Oh, that's exciting. Anywhere you can find me, just glomp on me and let me know. (laughs) Y'all better make sure to glomp on Rachel. That was amazing. Thank you again. You are truly magnificent. Thank you. This has been just a joy. It made my day. I feel like I can go write a million words now. And that wraps up our episode with Rachel Kane. Rachel, thank you so much for that incredibly moving conversation. I seriously loved talking with you and you are just such a magnificent human being. And I am so, so happy we got to meet through this. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in. As always, please say hi to Rachel over on Twitter at Rachel Kane. For a list of resources mentioned in her episode, head over to her show notes page at 88 Cups t.com slash podcast slash Rachel dash Kane. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating and a review, That really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before, and we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much for helping us grow our community. And if you haven't yet, don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow storytellers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at 88cupsoftea.com slash FB group. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week, and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.